Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Science Faction. The only show where a scientist, a comedian, and a comedian scientist come together to discuss science. Comedically. Hello! And welcome to Science Faction 618! Science Faction, older hominids, and getting that flu gone... It sounds like just as what the flu does to older humans, Mm -hmm. I imagine the flu will be thinning out older hominids as well. Well, we are hominids. So, yeah, if you're saying like other hominids. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I mean, like, if you say hominids, human isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Or is it? I don't know. Fans? Well, I would say this. It's almost certain that, like, previous hominids didn't have the flu because, like, their interaction with chickens was far less mutually delicious especially because chickens didn't exist and so like yeah i don't think that the the natural animal reservoirs were undoubtedly there in some kind of like natural animal group that was running around but it'd be very unlikely to have like sustained contact with human beings at that time you either like fucking killed the thing or you didn't but you're not catching a respiratory virus from it because it's not living in your hut you know yeah you know i mean we're actually i mean they got to taste a lot of animals we'll never taste that's true. You could argue that all the breakthroughs in medical science, convenience, uh, not starving to death, really kind of pale in comparison to all the advantages dietarily that they had. And speaking of the hominid of this show who has eaten the most diverse meats, I, of course, am your host, comedian archaeologist Robert Timothy. And with me, as always, as this show's perennial vegan, our comedian, Mr. Damien Mercado. Damien, how are you doing this afternoon? You know, um, yeah, uh, I am vegan. First off, I wish I had the strength of character to be vegan. I wish that I wasn't addicted to flavor and taste so much because I've grown more empathetic as I've gotten older. I'm like, oh, man, pigs are cool pets. Oh, man, the dodo just showed me a picture of a cow and it really humanized it for me. Fuck. See, unlike me, who I'm like, man, fuck chickens. They be giving us the flu. Let's eat their asses. We're being punished with the flu for the uh, for the Holocaust of chickens every year. And sorry, by the way, that we were down last week. We had two competing things going on. One, it was the 4th of July was our normal taping day, and we decided to do like a little bit of a family holiday. But the number two is, you might have heard a, a hint of this on our previous episode, but uh, Damien, you went ahead and danced with Lady COVID this last week, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I actually wanted, I know we have a new Patreon, and I wanted to, um, and, I, and I was looking forward to stepping aside and allowing uh, uh, Carl Sagan to come in. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, sure. uh, and talk about the James Webb telescope, but it turns out he's doing like a, a Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore ghost thing with his husband, Andrew Yan, on uh, their anniversary and today. Andrew Yan. Andrew Yan. Yeah, we're saying the same thing. I don't get why we argue. That's a lovely couple. I'm so sorry, Miss Drew, and wherever you are. I'm just so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Or just you're like like uh, you're calling Miss Drewian in the same way that like a football coach would uh, would would like pick on the gay kid in gym class like hey Miss Damien let's get up that <laughs> hill come on real grown up I feel so bad but but yeah I wanted to do that as a matter of fact I didn't even tell Alex Jones that Good. there was going to be because Good, because this is a non Alex Jones Patreon call out well this was supposed to be but he's yes, uh, but still like, will be. I'm looking at my well. I mean, we're gonna see how well my door security. I guess holds. we will. Yeah, I guess we will. Just, yeah, well, we can edit this. Well, well, 
Uh, you lent me a lot of power tools, Bobby, but I have to stop recording to go get a chainsaw or something. Sure. And, sure. But I'm walking outside. He's banging on the window right now. He's saying, up, we're preventing the summoning. Out, no, mm. Now he's climbing up the, uh, yeah, he's climbing up the, uh, the power line, the power pole, uh, like Winnie the Pooh shivvying up. Oh, the, uh, he is holding on to one of the electrical cables. It just snapped. He is, I can see his skeleton, uh, in the way that it can when a cartoon gets electrocuted. And he is swinging into my neighbor's house right now. Oh, he hit their beehive. Oh, now he's running down the street being chased by bees. And he's, yep. Well, I'm glad he didn't get on. I'm, gl- I'm very glad. He, that was so close. I'm so happy Alex Jones didn't get on because we promised any Patreons who signed up in a certain time period that they wouldn't get their shout out from Alex Jones. They'd get it from somebody else. So let's hear. We promised? No, 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 no. <laughs> that was a Bobby promise. I meant the royal we, <laughs> as in I did it and assumed you agreed. <laughs> like how we colonized the world. <laughs> Bobby does hold the password to my shot caller, so I am kind of <laughs> bending to his will. Oh, uh, dear. So, Dave, why don't you tell us about this new Patreon? So, uh, because my voice is a little scratchy right now, mm-hmm. and um, and because Carl Sagan is having a lovely dinner, no matter how much it pisses the bigot Bobby or Timothy off, is having a wonderful paranormal evening with his husband. There's so many things wrong with what you just said. <laughs> Paranormal <laughs> evening. <laughs> don't, you think I, don't you think I wish that I could be doing Carl Sagan's voice and talking about the James Webb telescope and thanking our Patreon, but it hurts my voice to do this for very long. So, <laughs> so if you're out there, uh, M. Kenakati, which is either A, an alias... Uh-huh. Or B, um, you're the one fan we have in Italy, despite all the negative things we say about Italy <laughs> and Italians. And it gets deeply personal. It's not even like they're like fun, like, oh, this is no. cultural jokes. Like Bobby and I are we're really offended by the Mussolini government for a number of reasons. <laughs> I uh when we first discovered our love of casual white on white racism, I thought, man. I found what I've been put on Earth for. I thought it was like maybe, you know, to, to promote science education, to, to discover certain archaeological sites, maybe to be a dad, all these. No, it was to bring back casual white on white racism. There, <laughs> uh, to our fans, uh, in, in the San Diego comedy scene, there's a, uh, an Italian uh, a comedian immigrant. And, and you know, she, she's, she's a lovely person because uh, I know her. I know the true secret to uh, getting to Italians. It's to mm. uh, claim that Ameri- American Italian things are actually Italian. So, like, uh, be like, oh, I know Italy. I've been to the Olive Garden. Or uh, macaroni <laughs> and cheese. I lo- or, hey, oh, the, like, you're Italian, just like the Jersey Shore guys. That pisses Italians off like nobody's business in a very real way. Like, Bobby, you and I are doing it, like, in a cartoonish way. This is uh-huh. how you do it for real. Sure. Yeah, I'm trying to think of all the things. Let's let's think of the things that piss off Italians. We have uh, anti-cat calling laws. <laughs> hey, baby, I respect your body and your decisions. I'm sorry that Roe v. Wade got overturned. Undershirts without grease on them. <laughs> Not appreciating a mother, a very intrusive mother. That's racist against Italians to 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 not appreciate. An in-your-face mother-in-law. And 
not sponsoring your own countrymen when they go off to try and find other lands, but then claiming them hundreds of years later as if your shitty culture did anything except turn them down. <laughs> Thank you, Spain, for all the wonderful <laughs> colonialism things you did. Signed, the people of the new world. Yeah, right. So like if you're Italy did the right thing. They're on the right side of history. If Europe was writing like uh, like a letter about its kids and its kids were all the constituent countries that made up Europe, it would be like, listen, Italy, I'm not going to lie. You had this renaissance, have all these great thinkers. I'm expecting so much from you. It's like you're a kid in the gate program in the third grade, right? Like we we know you're going straight to college. Meanwhile, Spain has got like inquisitions going on. They're fucking killing one another. It's pandemonium in there. They're a fucking dictatorship until the 1970s. It's nuts over there. We are not expecting many things from them. And all of a sudden, it's just one of those things where like the golden child ends up falling and... And the one that's uh, the one that you thought was going to have a lot of trouble ends up being like the successful used car dealer you never saw coming. And hence the Spain. You know, it's bad when your parents are like, really? Spain is doing better than you. Spain. <laughs> they haven't figured out how to heat up tomato soup yet. Italy went to World War II and got some real bad PTSD. They were a kid with all this potential, and now they just do drugs and fuck. And make no... You could, we could sit here and make fun of Italy all we want, but if we were to anthropomorphize that country, it would fuck. Like, England would be a little nerd. Or it would be a boot. <laughs> One or the other. Uh, that or it's an Italian penis, just like Florida is the American penis. Well, Patreon Kenakati, I hope that you enjoy the fact that we just badmouth Italians for at least three times the length of time we talked about your actual Patreon donation. <laughs> Let's move right on to science articles. From molecules to particles, this is Science Articles. Yeah, my voice was kind of shitty uh, for this, but like one of the reasons we we argued that we didn't have to, we were like, hey man, we had a lot to talk about today. Maybe we don't have time to do the Patreon. That was one of the things. And then our love of bashing on Italy ended up stealing the show. <laughs> <laughs> we got more distracted than a Venetian at a supermarket. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know why. I'm going to start that new one. The, the Venetian people from Venice can't navigate supermarkets. I don't know I, I, why. I'm a Medici. I'm a very wealthy. I'm from out of time. <laughs> I do not know what to do in this store. There is just a meat at the counter. Go back to Naples and fuck dogs, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> we know what you do there. I, I'll, I'll do that, but I'm amazed by this refrigeration that is in this store. <laughs> All right. Article number one. Famous Australopithecus has been lying about her age all along. That Lucy bitch. I knew it. It wasn't actually Lucy this time, believe it or not. But this is actually about a, a different fossil group, in fact, a different fossil species. But it does connect to Lucy, and this is really, really interesting. So let's go all the way back, for those of you guys who don't know, and start with what is an Australopithecine? Uh, they are, I believe an Australopithecine is before the Denny Bears, you know, when you, when you, mm -hmm. uh, it's an early, it's uh, when you, it, when you look at like those uh, old church pictures of like a monkey becoming man and then a circle with a cross on it, uh, they're like one of Which the- Which is how you did most of your, your learning. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's why you thought for the longest time that if you were in a park and you were drinking, you could only do it out of a martini glass, which is be- because the the no drinking at the park sign is a martini glass. It's crossed out. <laughs> oh, no, this is a, a 40 in a brown paper bag. I should be fine. Clearly legal. <laughs> Oh, uh, hey, uh, yeah, Australopithecus would be like, uh, like the second or third of those Christian uh, uh, crude okay. representation of the. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way you're not too far off. So uh, Australopithecines do date back pretty far in like the four and a half million range, depending on what species you're talking about. And they are one of the earliest uh, genuses that are around. Uh, they are composed of multiple species. And the most famous ones are like, you, you would think of like Lucy. These ones are very gracile. They are upright walking. And that's what distinguishes Australopithecines, makes them an hominid from other groups of apes is that this is the group that led to us, even though they don't really have a bigger brain to speak of, not that much bigger than chimps and other apes and stuff, what really sets them apart is upright walking. And we, Australopithecines were the evidence that this predated big brains. We used to think big brains were the first and then, you know, upright walking or, or something came later. We now know, th- thanks to Australopithecines, that in fact, upright walking predated big brains by a very, by a very long time. Now, while the very later versions, like Australopithecus garhi, we do believe to be tool users, the ones, that, especially the early Australopithecines, like Lucy and the other ones we see, we, we think were not tool users whatsoever. Now, what was interesting is there is a... There is a species of Australopithecus called Australopithecus africanus. It was one of the first discovered in 1936 by Raymond Dart, a very famous story, became a very famous fossil called Tong Child. But that area where Tong Child was from became one of the most famous locations in all of human evolutionary history. An incredibly famous site that anybody who's ever even done undergrad work in human evolution has has heard of before. It's a site called Sterkfontein. And it contains a ton of hominid fossils across millions of years from Australopithecus to later Paranthropus and, and Homo and a bunch of other stuff. It is an incredibly rich fossil area about 25 miles north of Johannesburg in South Africa and has been yielding fossils for nearly a century now. Okay, I was about to say Sterkfontein. What is that? What is? I was like, what? What is that? It's not French. What? Is, ah, no. Rhodesian. Ah, I see. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it's it's so famous. I mean, anybody, like I said, anybody who's even done undergrad, uh, a couple classes in, in paleoanthropology has heard Sterkfontein because it is so famous. And a lot of the, fo- the fossils there are so famous because because of that site, uh, including Tong Child. And then there's some other very famous ones. There's Littlefoot. There's one that was called Miss Pless uh, or Miss Please for pleases. And, and these individuals, at least some of which represent Australopithecus africanus. In fact, I think it's it's safe to say it's probably the biggest distribution of Australopithecus africanus. Now, what's interesting is the dating on Australopithecus africanus has always been a little bit funky. Now, I learned this in undergrad. I learned this that there was some dispute in the dating uh, of parts of the lower areas of Sterkfontein because the stratigraphy is really messed up. Basically, you know, uh, it's not just one layer on top of another on top of another. There's all these different inclusions and holes and whatnot. And and that has really messed up the dating of that area, plus the lack of uh, certain datable materials and stuff. And so when it first came in, 
they thought it was maybe three plus million years old, but then later they refined that. And starting in the early 2000s, they were pretty confident it was closer to about two million years old, two to two and a half million. And we have finally knocked that back down to three and a half million years old, which is somewhat contemporary with Lucy's species. I mean, there's some overlap there, uh, making it less likely that it'd be a direct descendant, though it still very well could be. But this totally changes things. Now, the headlines will make it seem like, ah, we we have been dating these to two million years old forever. We just found out it was three and a half. What dumb scientists. In fact, this has been a controversial dating thing for a long time because there hasn't been easily datable material. It's not like somebody fucked up. It was just a very hard thing to date. As we get better, we can use new... Like Tom Cruise. Yes, yes. <laughs> you got to get the church's permission. We used a technique that I've discussed on this show before, but that is fairly recent. It's really only come about in the last decade, and that's optical luminescence dating. And what that does is it looks at the last time something like a quartz crystal was exposed to sunlight. Because sunlight contains within it cosmic rays. Those cosmic rays can change elements within the quartz crystal. Specifically, it can create aluminum-26 and beryllium-10. Aluminum-26 is unstable, and it decays into magnesium over like a very, very long time span. And so by measuring the amount of aluminum-26 and beryllium-10, we can tell the last time that a particular quartz rock was exposed to sunlight because it is no longer being created. Those cosmic rays are no longer hitting that quartz rock. It is no longer making aluminum-26. And so we can see it decay, and then we can measure its relation to beryllium-10, see how much magnesium has decayed, how much magnesium is there from decaying from aluminum-26, and determine the last time that particular quartz crystal was in the sunlight. And with that, we were able to more accurately date these fossils to about three and a half million years old. You keep saying you kept saying quartz rock uh, throughout that, and I remembered the old joke that we had on the show that uh, yeah. that uh, it was a purposeful misreading of your uh, mention of the quartz rock uh, into a propaganda campaign to get people really into the American judicial system and hey quartz rock, and uh, but it was like an eighties stay off drugs. Uh, they were trying to get people uh, to, uh, to to want to be judges. Nobody wanted to be a judge for a long time. <laughs> Until this propaganda campaign. Yeah, that was a problem before they came up with cartoons to play during, during like, He-Man. <laughs> now people respect the judiciary, you know, and then lately, uh, I, we, we, need, we need some propaganda to believe in the courts again. So... How did they get it wrong? Again, bad dating, a lot of incon uh, a lot of out of context stuff. But Stirk Fontaine is a great example of a rushed excavation. It was done in the 30s. It was originally a mine, so they weren't being super careful. But B, just natural bad stratigraphy. So you don't have things that are all the way in situ. It's not layered like a nice one is. And I have come across <laughs> really bad stratigraphy before. I've come across inclusions and all this stuff when I'm doing digs, and I hate it. It is mind-numbing. Sometimes this happens from animals. Where I work, a lot of times the culprits are like ground squirrels, like something that's a rodent that's digging in the ground will fuck up the stratigraphy. And sometimes they'll literally carry like artifacts and bits of stuff from lower levels up to higher levels or vice versa. And they'll fuck up your entire stratigraphy. And you'll be looking at something and be like, this doesn't make sense. How am I, how come I getting late prehistoric artifacts in what should be like early archaic deposits? What's going on here? And eventually you find like the remnants of the tunnel and you see what happens and it, and it fucks you up. Sir, 
Eric Fontaine is basically a giant example of this. I saw the stratigraphic diagrams, like what they actually put out in, uh, what they actually put out as the side profile of the stratigraphy, and it is fucked up. I would not <laughs> want to dig this thing for a million dollars. The stratigraphy is so fucked up in this. And, and so that's one part. One problem is stuff is in the wrong place. But another is it actually created just the way the sedimentation happened over time. Th some pockets opened up, likely due to an erosion thing that happened about two and a half million years ago. And those pockets were then filled in with what we call flow stones, which is where like water flows into those cavities, solidifies and becomes a rock. And then when you dig it, if you don't know that, it seems like that rock has been there. And that if you can find a way to date that rock, you get the wrong date because it was flow sediment that came in millions of years later. And that's exactly what we think happened here in the Stirk Fontaine case. And that's how for the past 20 years, the quote unquote best dates have given us a 2.2 million year old date. You said some really interesting things here, Bobby, but I think the more important thing is that when you first mentioned Stirk Fontaine to me, I had a bunch of South African jokes that I was like, oh, that sounds like uh, the, uh, that sounds like the, the nickname Elon Musk's dad have, or that sounds like somebody okay. who, uh, who enslaved uh, natives to run his diamond mine in South Africa. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to stereotype. And I know that sounds odd from a guy who spelt 12 minutes ripping into Italians at the, at right. the beginning of the show. But I didn't want to stereotype. And then when you said that this literally was a fucking old mine, I'm like, damn it. Always trust your instincts when it comes to degrading another white culture. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear lord uh yeah very very interesting and this does change kind of our our broad understanding again it's not everything the media made it out to be i i read a bunch of the articles and again as somebody who kind of knows this stuff a little bit better reading it and they're like oh we blew it away they've been convinced it's been this age forever and it's like no the ages the dates have always been controversial on that and and flow stones fuck you up and optical luminescence is fantastic so this is just one of those things where we're kind of settling stuff in i can say though I have, from the time I was an undergrad, a lot of paleoanthropologists, specifically the ones who are really into the biological side of it, have suggested that those dates were off just based on morphology. That seems to indicate that a lot of the stuff, that some of the stuff we were talking about was older. And Miss Pless is one of those fossils that they believe is 3.5 uh, million years old. Now, obviously, we still have newer stuff in there. The, like I said, there's still Homo and Paranthropus and other species that came later. That is still there and still around. And we'll have to check on the dates on that stuff as well. But those shouldn't be too far out. What, what is interesting in this is and redefining the dates and pushing them back to three and a half million years for these particular fossils, we actually redefine when a species was, species was around because that would push it to the oldest examples of Africanus. That is really interesting because that is going to kind of change the timeline that we know of of human evolution. You know, you have described uh, on several occasions, like there, uh, there was a certain time uh, where you, the, the world was Middle Earth. You know, uh, yeah. that you you go Lots over. Of hominids. Uh, yeah, you know, this wasn't different quite that time. This was four million years ago. You had Africanus, Animensis. You had Afarensis. You didn't have nearly as many though. They and they weren't as different. They were all kind of Australopithecines. They're all kind of doing very similar shit, at least until Paranthropus came around. It, it was really later on, if you want to think of like 
the the late Pleistocene where you would get just wildly diverse things where one thing is four feet tall and the other thing is six foot two and they're all in different parts of the world living very different lifestyles, you know? Okay, and you have said many times before that you do not like uh, fantasy tabletop role-playing games. You do not like Correct. Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. However, I think we might have found a loophole. If I could somehow create an adventure of prehistoric hominids who banded together to defeat some realistic evil, like maybe hunger or famine. Fuck. Or, uh, Fuck, you might have gotten me on that one. Yeah, I think I, think I could get okay. you into to Dungeons Caveat. and Dragons that way. Caveat. Every part of it has to be scientifically accurate. And the second it veers away from that, I'm fucking out. Uh, Dr. Troy is going to be dungeon mastering this, so don't you worry. It'll be not a problem. Oh, dear. On article number two, a universal flu vaccine. uh, I haven't seen Bernie Sanders in a while. Is that his new thing? I'm tired of the top 5% of people (laughs) getting... I thought two percent of flu vaccines. That would be an interesting claim, by the way. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, yeah, does everybody else just get like the vaccines that are just like twenty percent effective, but like the top five percent? Somebody shows up in a Toyota Camry in the drive-by flu shot place. They just give them the shot, but then if somebody drives up in a Range Rover, they pull out like a gold-tipped shot. <laughs> well, right this way, not that entrance, sir. <laughs> Come around this way. This is the real vaccine. <laughs> They're getting horsey sauce from Arby's. Yeah, we're doing a Tuskegee experiment with uh, with uh, white poor people now. Like, they all... <laughs> oh, dear. So we've talked about the idea of a universal flu vaccine before, but we are now one step closer, and I'm super excited to tell you why. Real quick, let's, re- let's review influenza, the virus, the deaths, and how much problems it caused. We talked about it just a few weeks ago. We have been somebody who has been harping on the flu since well before the current COVID pandemic. In fact, starting, I think, a few years before the COVID pandemic. On this particular show, I started chastising everybody and yelling at you to get your flu shots because it really does make a difference. And you, as somebody who gets sick, also has responsibility for the people in the transmission chain down the line. And so even if it doesn't kill you, it kills somebody 10 steps away from you. You hold some responsibility for that person dying. And and it is a blight on our country, on the world. I mean, annual deaths range from 300,000 to 650,000 people worldwide die every year. And that's not even including those who are hospitalized, seriously injured, all of that other stuff, missed work, all that. It is a significant problem in our society. And it's one that we might have the ability, kind of a unique ability to fight right now because we saw entire strains of the flu die out during the COVID quarantine. When we were all sitting around with masks, not getting anywhere near anybody who had the sniffles, suddenly somebody who had the flu, man, we stayed the fuck away. That person didn't go out in public. And we saw entire lineages of the flu literally go extinct and flu numbers plummeted in 2020 to crazy numbers. And it might be a situation that we might be in a very unique place to really fight the flu with a good enough vaccine program. And this is me talking, this isn't the scientist, I'm just saying, we are at the flu's weakest point. And so if if ever there was a time where we really needed to up flu vaccines, it is now because we have a chance to kill this motherfucker. How is ivermectin against the flu? Not good, just like COVID. <laughs> huh, weird, that's not what I heard. So it makes me think I can't trust you because you because you clearly lied about the COVID thing. So it makes me think I can't trust you about the flu thing. So why is the flu shot good, but it doesn't always work? It's always good, but not great. Certainly isn't where near the 90 something percent we saw that the COVID vaccine had uh, against the alpha variant. But why is that? 
It's because it's a horse race, right? Like, because it's like, yes. it's like, like a scientist are picking like, hey, I think it's going to be uh, starts in China for a million, I think. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it almost always starts in China or Southeast Asia in general. That's where more flus come from or seasonal flus. And and what we do is we monitor that and we see what is coming out of there and what looks like it'll be most the most likely flu strain. And then we do a vaccine for that strain. It does have some protection against other strains, but not a lot. And so sometimes they can be as effective as like 65% effective and as little effective as like 20%, depending on what happens that year and how good we are at predicting them. That's still better than nothing. We should still use it. But the reason that is ineffective isn't because we can't make a good vaccine. It's because we don't know exactly what to make the good vaccine for. That's why a universal flu vaccine would be amazing. Not only that, but frankly, then once you took the vaccine, as long as the vaccine was effective, you would keep coverage. Whereas the reason now you have to keep going and getting it, it's not because it necessarily wears off. There's a little bit of that, but really it's because it's a different strain coming that year. So if you had a universal one, you wouldn't have to go every year, assuming that it maintained the antibodies over time. You know, if I were like big business, I would I would fund this absolutely. The, the number one thing people yeah, call in, totally. pretend to call in sick, like, even if they really have the flu. But let's take like the people who just like call in sick and like give vague flu like symptoms. Yeah. You can take that off the table for for the yeah. for the proletariat. Yeah. Well, so so most people don't know this. We have. Four different main groups of the flu, A, B, C, and D. A and B cause all the problems in humans. C gets you a little sick. It's kind of like a cold, but it doesn't cause pandemics. It doesn't cause death. It doesn't cause any of that shit. And D is in like cows and shit, and it doesn't mess with us. So out of A and B, A causes the most pandemics. That's where you're going to see like H1N1, all that kind of stuff. Um, that describes the different binding sites on, on the A group. But B also causes a lot of problems and sometimes can cause up to 40% of our, our big infectious pandemics. Most are A, but some are B. So this study, they looked at how to get a universal flu vaccine just for flus within that B group. Because within that B group, there are multiple subtypes. And it is those subtypes we try and target when we do a flu vaccine. And again, the ones we get wrong because we got the wrong subtype. They're usually still within B though. So what we did, what they did is they went, they tried to do something different. Those subtypes are differentiated by kind of the little ends that the virus, that changes on the ends of those virus, on the end of that virus, the binding sites. And what they realized is because, you know, one vaccine is cued to one binding site, it's not going to work for the different types of B virus. But... If we go for the conserved part of the virus, the, vi the part that's the same th throughout the whole thing, then, well, then it will work even if it's a different subtype of B. And they tried this and they were actually able to do it. I'm going to read to you exactly what they did. It's a little bit above my pay grade. So in this study, they generated structure stabilized HA stock antigens from influenza B and fabricated double layered protein nanoparticles as a universal B vaccine candidate. So basically they took artificial nanoparticles and made them look like that conserved part of the virus that, that all B part all B flu viruses have and then when your body get, gets injected with these nanoparticles and starts fighting them off it turns out it can now fight seemingly 
any bee flu virus. Now, this was done in animals. We'll see if this works over in people. But this is a new type of vaccine called a nanoparticle vaccine. We've talked about this a little bit. Novavax makes, is making one for COVID. So we were talking about this a little bit about a year ago. But this is a different type of vaccine. We have old protein vaccines. We have new mRNA vaccines. Nanoparticles are a whole different thing. They're using non-living molecules that replicate the, the binding sites. And they seem to be really productive productive and able to produce like kind of broad spectrum immunity. Now, the next step is, can we do the same thing for A, make one nanoparticle vaccine that can fight all A flu influenzas, and then combine the two and give it as a single shot, and theoretically, you're fucking immune from the flu. Like, and I think there's a lot of workers who are going to be caught off guard by this vaccine. You know, there's got like, like you know, their favorite band's going to come to town on a Friday and they're going to try to, to call in sick with flu-like symptoms and their boss is going to call them out and deny it or, you know, fire them. Whereas I am going to, because I'm ahead of the game and a genius, going to describe the symptoms of dick gout and get out of work <laughs> that way. Very, very interesting. Who knows when it will come to market, but if it does, I, I cannot wait because uh, flus really fuck us up, and I hope we can do that. All right, thank you, audience, for coming back for Science Faction 618, where you learned all about how a famous Australopithecine has been lying about her age and how we're one step closer to a universal flu vaccine. Thank you so much for joining us, and come on back next week for Science Faction 619. Let's get serious for a minute. You know, we talked a lot on this episode and previous ones about dick gout. But I want to let you know there's nothing funny about dick gout. Except the weird noises. You've been listening to Science Fuction. Wait, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs>